My title is The Peculiar Greatness of the Way We Live Now. And in focusing on the peculiar greatness of the novel, I'm thinking uh, sort of about that peculiarity in a couple of ways. Partly what distinguishes it from other Trollope novels, because it is rather different, not completely different, I don't think at all, uh, but, but rather different from most Trollope novels. It's, it's, it's a little darker. It's a little nastier. Uh, um, uh, it's a little harder for us to find the places where we're going to dive in and sympathize uh, um, with a particular character um, than is the case for other Trollope novels. And it's one that bends almost to the breaking point, I think, the romantic comedy structure that, that, uh, uh, that, uh, that organizes most of Trollope novels, where we do uh, wait for marriages to be made at the end, as Stephanie was saying yesterday, almost as if it's a Shakespearean comedy. Um, our marriages get made at the end of this one, but, but we have some funny feelings about them, and the, they're not as important to us, I think, as they might be. So I want to talk about the ways in which this is peculiarly great and different from other Trollope novels, but also I want to talk about the peculiar greatness of Trollope, because I think the greatness of this novel has everything to do, ultimately, still with its deeply Trollopean character. Not just to heighten your appreciation of this novel, but also to suggest that you read a lot more of them. Trollope wrote 47 novels, so if you like Trollope, um, uh, um, and they're remarkably consistent in quality, uh, um, you'll never need to wonder what to read on an airplane again. Uh, um, it'll be, uh, you're, you're all set. Trollope himself, when he talked about this novel in his autobiography, uh, talked about it um, in a sort of reserved way. He said it, he felt it was a success, but that it hadn't done quite what he wanted it to, uh, that he felt there were certain failures. He said that it uh, gave a good account of its bad people, but a poor account of its good people, he felt, um, and that it exaggerated heavily uh, uh, the vices that it meant to expose. Um, his uh, villains were too villainous, his uh, good people he didn't think were strong enough. And this, as Declan uh, told us yesterday with all that wonderful information, I think he was, whether consciously or unconsciously, echoing criticisms that he'd made of Dickens' novels. And it's true that this is his most Dickensian novel. Uh, one way it's Dickensian is because of its uh, satiric intensity, because of the time it spends um, mingling comedy with a kind of savage criticism of the ladies and, gentlemen's of the, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the, of the British upper crust. But it's Dickensian in another way that's a little bit unusual for Trollope, too. Um, it also shares with Dickens the panoramic ambitions that are announced in its title, The Way We Live Now. Um, the ambition to offer a comprehensive report on the health, or really on the ill health, of Victorian civilization. Um, uh, this is there are a number of novels. I know that I think those of you who are uh, a steady and long-time uh, participants in this group uh, read Middlemarch a number of years ago. Um, this is quite a different book. Middlemarch, of course, is set in uh, 1832 at the time of the Reform Bill, so it's not quite the way we live now. It's the way, but, but it, it had the same ambition to present a picture of a whole civilization, of a whole society in all its interactions. Um, this is one of a number of Victorian novels, now the way we live now, that also has that same ambition, though I think maybe the other novels that come closest are, in one sense, uh, One Way Thackeray's Vanity Fair, and then two great novels that Dickens wrote in the 1850s, A Bleak House and Little Dorrit, which we heard about yesterday. Little Dorrit, which has its own uh, uh, um, sort of uh, you know, financier operator who, um, who crashes horribly, um, his name you heard yesterday is Myrtle. Uh, um, those of you who know French will hear what Dickens was intending to tell us uh, um, about about Mr. Myrtle um, with his with his name. Um, 
And um, the other thing I think these novels have in common is not just that they are satirically focused on exposing Mr. Myrtle and, in the case of uh, The Way We Live Now, Mr. Melmott, but in some ways that the satire directed at those who fawn over Mr. Myrtle and Mr. Melmott, those uh, uh, fine ladies and gentlemen who uh, worship slavishly uh, at uh, mammon, uh, the, the god of money, uh, um, those are really, I think, in many ways, much uh, objects of much sharper satire uh, um, on the part of Dickens and of Trollope uh, um, than, than are the financiers at the center. And um, then you can immediately see, I think, these resemblances and continuities between, uh, between the way we live now and those Dickens novels, but then also see why Trollope, prizing as he did the values, the values of a sort of ordinary and patient, steady realism, would have felt uneasy about having written such a book. It was uh, familiar work for Dickens to be savagely critical of uh, the privileged classes. It's not the way Trollope usually operated. He writes a lot about ladies and gentlemen whose lives he, to some extent, admires and to some extent envies. And so he writes, there's a, a kind of celebration of the attractions and the values in some of Trollope's novels of a certain degree of privileged ease. He does sort of, he's not a Tory himself, but he buys partially the Tory line that something important and valuable about English society is being preserved and maintained by people who live in great houses and who uh, sort of carry forward certain habits of civility. He doesn't seem to feel that at all in this book, and our aristocrats are a very sad lot. I like the novel much more, I think, than Trollope did himself. I, uh, I go for the sort of D.H. Uh, Lawrence line, I, I trust the tale and not the teller. And the novel tells me that, uh, um, that it's filled with a kind of conviction in the case it makes. And I think it's possible, even necessary in some ways, to separate our view of the novel from Trollope's and to notice aspects of it, of its great power that in some ways escaped him. Um, first of all, I think he underestimates simply the large-heartedness of the book, um, the comedy of it, um, even as we are criticizing uh, um, and finding you know, impossible those pathetic guys at the Bear Garden. They really uh, can be quite good company, Lord Nidderdale and Dolly Longstaff, uh, um, and even Miles Grendel wreathed in you know, debt and cigar smoke um, as he is. Uh, so there's a lot of good humor in the novel. Um, there are also, I think, um, particularly towards the end of the novel, some moments of really it's, uh, of, of quiet, sobered, and chastened affirmation, but affirmation uh, nevertheless. Um, and those moments, it seems to me, are wonderfully earned by what has come before and offer a deep satisfaction. So I think, as I say, that Trollope in some ways underestimated the comforts of the book he offers. He was made uncomfortable, I think, too, in some cases, by the generosity he displayed towards his characters. In some ways, I think he, he makes us sympathize more with Mr. Melmott uh, um, than he intended to, in some way. He just, his, his way of always wanting to go inside a character, always wanting to ask, what is it like to be Mr. Melmott at this moment, makes Mr. Melmott live for us, particularly as his crisis approaches. And it's not a question of liking or of approving, him any more than we like or approve uh, Macbeth when we're reading uh, 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 Shakespeare's Macbeth, but we experience the world with him, such are Trollope's powers of sympathetic imagination, and I think it made Trollope almost uncomfortable maybe to have identified that much with Mr. Melmott, to have entered into his circumstances to that degree. I think uh, for me, the other truly great character in the novel, and I'm uh, glad to, to have heard from, from Declan yesterday that he shared this opinion, um, 
is Mrs. Hurdle, who, who uh, um, and I think Trollope in some ways surprised himself, uh, um, or maybe or embarrassed himself. Uh, I think he falls in love with her in the course of this novel, uh, uh, um, and and I, I know just what he means. Uh, um, I uh, uh, understand uh, the appeal, and so I think that uh, you know those portraits turn out to be oddly affecting. Second, I think he may have backed away from the book a little because I think he, in some sense, may have been troubled by how far the satire goes. I think the, the evils that he was exposing, the vices that he was exposing, he, he may have exposed more than he wished to. It's not just a question, I don't think, of exaggerating the materialism of Victorian society, but of discovering that some of the flaws in the society or the weaknesses in the foundations of Victorian society, its belief in itself, some of the flaws that were uh, revealed through this uh, um, analysis of materialism and this exposure of it turns out to be more than just the money system that was flawed in some way. Uh, um, and he really discovers a kind of crisis of conviction, I think, in, um, in British society, a way in which the positive case that it has to make for itself um, isn't as strong um, as, it, as, as, it, as it once was or as the Victorians imagined it might be, um, and so that this case against uh, materialism spreads out more and more. The Victorian society, there were all sorts of challenges coming at them, and you can see in this novel, you know, Americans, Irish people, Roman Catholics, uh, um, Jewish bankers, uh, um, Melmots, uh, um, and in a striking way, it seems to me, all of those sort of outside vulgarians, those are the most vital people in the novel, and there's a sort of shortage of vital conviction on the part of those who want to answer back to them and resist them, and I think it made Trollope uneasy, deeply uneasy, when he discovered that. There's a sense of something being sort of exhausted and played out, I think, in Victorian society. And so that we end with some, some private acts of redemption and salvation having been accomplished, but with the sense that the world is going on much as it had before. Time to back up a little bit and look at some of the principal topics and players. First, we've been with the, the central fact of sort of Melmottism as it organizes the novel. Um, I had never seen before the, the cover uh, picture that, uh, that Declan uh, showed us yesterday. I was pleased to see it. I, I didn't know for sure that Trollope's own sense of the novel and those marketing it put Melmott at the center uh, quite as much as that, that cover uh, image proves that it did. Uh, certainly Melmott uh, belongs at the center of the novel because of what he represents and because of the way that the world of the novel sort of organizes itself around him. Well, what's wrong with Melmott? I mean, lots of things, of course. He's a swindler and a thief and, and, a, and, and, uh, and a bully, uh, um, horrible to the people he knows. But sort of in terms of social analysis, one of the things that Trollope is analyzing is a kind of money worship. Uh, um, it's extraordinary the degree to which everybody in the novel uh, um, pursues Melmoth because of his money. Um, and it's not just money worship, but a whole sort of commodification and commercialization of the society. Another of the uh, sort of Victorian sages and critics who Trollope criticized and wanted to distance himself from was an earlier writer named Thomas Carlyle. When Dickens shows up in the warden as Mr. Popular Sentiment um, in the same chapter, Carlyle shows up as Mr. Pessimist Anti-Cant. But it's Carlyle who first talked about in Victorian society what he called the cash nexus, the way in which Victorian capitalist society made everything a commodity, everything could be marketed and sold. And so one of the other striking things I think that Trollope notices for us is that it's not just stocks that go up and down. There's a social stock market. There's a literary reputation stock market. 
everything. Uh, um, think about what happens to those uh, tickets to the to the ball. The, the Chinese emperor, when Georgiana Longstaff is sort of trading for her life with them, uh, um, you know, trying to uh, you know make deals with her friend, Lady Monogram, uh, see if she can get a couple of days of Lady Mon Monogram's countenance and maybe an invitation for Mr. Bregert if she gives her tickets. Um, but the stock value of the tickets goes up and down. So everything's commodified. Um, the other way in which Melmont, I think, is a strange and new phenomenon is that nobody quite knows where his money comes from. It's not from land. Um, it's not even from the relatively new form of wealth of manufacture. He doesn't make anything. Uh, um, in earlier Trollope novels, there's a wonderful heiress who's, uh, who's, uh, who's a father uh, made uh, um, uh, special little liver pills that were supposed to make you healthy. Uh, um, and, uh, uh, but uh, we don't know where um, Melmott's money comes from. We don't know how much he's got of it or what the nature is it of. Nobody knows the nature, the extent, even the reality of his fortune. And so the other thing that Trollope's exposing here is not only that uncertainty, but the idea of credit. The money exists, in some sense, only as long as it's believed in. If everybody believes in it, then, and, and it's because, uh, it's really very peculiar, it's very artfully done, I think, it's Dolly Longstaff, clueless as he is, uh, um, who's sort of like the little kid in the emperor's new clothes, uh, uh, because sort of, um, I want my money. I want my money, I want my money, and it brings the whole edifice tumbling down. But the suggestion is that it's held up by a sort of collaborative faith. Um, and everything about the sort of the artifice of this economy feels as if it's part of that. Um, when the, uh, those uh, sort of clueless uh, crew, uh, the South Central Mexican and Pacific Railway Board of Directors assembles, uh, um, uh, Trollope tells us at one point there was not one of them then present who had not, after some fashion, been given to understand that his fortune was to be made not by the construction of the railway, but by the floating of the railway shares. No railway is required, uh, in some sense, uh, uh, to make money out of the railway. And, uh, of course, this is very timely. We know all about it. I mean, in fact, it's even sort of timely from 15 to 20 years ago. Uh, um, uh, fortunes that are built on the anticipation and execution of the first IPO, um, you know, before a final product has been marketed or a profit made. Um, and when Paul Montague's faith in this new form of enterprise is wavering, the great Melmot himself takes him aside to sort of warn him off and lecture to him. And he tells him, he says, gentlemen who don't know the nature of credit, how strong it is as the air to buoy one up how slight it is as a mere vapor when roughly touched. A gentleman like that can do an amount of mischief of which they themselves don't in the least understand the extent. And, and so it is, it's um, lording it over somebody who doesn't know. Um, but of course, there is, there's a deep weakness in the system. Trollope writes wonderfully about this new kind of commerce, which is supported by the passive assent of those who don't understand anything about it. Um, like the members of the board. Um, uh, and I, I, I love that those are wonderfully comic scenes, the, the, the meetings of, of that board. Um, um, but anyway, and, and this reminds us, it kind of eerily doesn't it, of stories we heard in 2006 and seven and eight of repackaged investments so complex that nobody understood them, not those who were buying them and not those who were selling them. But everybody was making money and it seemed to be working out. And if all of those other investors didn't see anything wrong, why should I? And um, you could feel that there were a lot of people even inside the financial system who were gathered up and carried along 
I don't quite get it, but it must be all right because uh, it's still going forward. And Melmot works his business in that kind of way. Um, so I think that's a, that's a, a wonderful uh, uh, say. It's a wonderful analysis, but it goes so much further, I think, than that, and in lots of directions. Uh, Trollope kind of repeats the motif uh, um, again and again. I um, think of all those card players in the Bear Garden who are living in their own exchange market that consists more and more of the paper IOUs that they exchange with each other and that have meaning and value only so long as the belief can be sustained that this paper might be someday converted into banknotes. But once, once you finally, you know, once the, once the IOU economy, you know, has, has, uh, has been clearly exposed, uh, um, then you can, then it's like Confederate money. You might as well paper the wall with, with, the, with the IOUs. Uh, um, uh, and it's, as I say, and Trollope is, I think, very deliberately, in some sense, extending and widening his critique, suggesting what it's like offering an analogy that helps us to understand and to feel our way through this phenomenon that he's describing. Um, and as I say, it's not just in matters of money. I was saying literary reputation, too. And again, we heard this uh, a passage last night. The one most essential obstacle to the chance of success in all this, we're told about Lady Carberry's literary, literary, excuse me, about Lady Carberry's literary ambitions, was her conviction that her end was to be obtained not by producing good books, but by inducing certain people to say that her books were good. So it's not the gold of actual literary achievement, but the inflated paper currency of praise um, that she wants to trade in, um, and praise that then gets exchanged in a general atmosphere of sort of log rolling and mutual backscratching in the literary world. Um, pushing this process further afield, as I was saying earlier, there's the social stock market of, of invitations and acceptances. Um, at the time of Melmott's uh, you know, Great Dinner for the Emperor, Trollope writes, I think, really frankly and comically of that wildly fluctuating market value of the tickets to the dinner. They rise high at one point, then threaten to crash altogether as the scandalous rumors begin to circulate about Melmott's uh, liquidity and honesty. Um, and uh, calling to you the, you know, uh, these tickets are the stuff of life to Georgiana Longstaff, who needs to trade them for her, for her, you know, last desperate chances to be accepted. Uh, um, um, and um, it's interesting to hear, too, what um, Lady Monogram says when she's explaining why she can only give one price and not another. She'll have Mr. Bregert come to her rooms after dinner, but not to dinner. Uh, she can't do that. And, uh, and she says, Lady Monogram, I don't make the lines, but there they are. And one gets to know in a sort of way what they are. I don't pretend to be a bit better than my neighbors. I like to see people come here whom other people who come here will like to meet. I'm big enough to hold my own, and so is Sir Damask, but we ain't big enough to introduce newcomers. Um, she knows her own value. Uh, um, she knows what she can and can't get away with. And she doesn't, again, the idea that you would invite people to your house because you would like to see them uh, um, is, is, is nowhere to be seen. You invite people to your house who other people who you invite to your house would like to see. And again, so it's this whole world of, of, of speculation in some sense and of, of false value built up but on no firm foundation. So it all is, you know, working in a great uh, circularity. That reminds me a little bit, it was... Uh, uh, a Monty Python skit. I remember one of my many Monty Python watchers there were here about a block of flats uh, in England that was held up by hypnosis. And, uh, uh, and as, 
as soon as the people living in the block of flats begin to uh, doubt its, uh, its solidity, it would begin to topple and go in. And, um, and it feels sometimes as if I, they were onto something. And I think, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, Trollope understands the mechanism. Um, and what all this makes clear, uh, among other things, I think that Melmott himself is uh, much more of a symptom than a problem. Um, I think he's one of the great triumphs of the book, uh, um, and he's a figure not of, of sympathy exactly, certainly not an object of approval, but somebody who emerges as his crisis approaches from, from two-dimensional caricature into three-dimensional character. He sort of pops up and suddenly has a depth and inwardness that Trollope's interested in exploring him, and we suddenly begin to experience his circumstances from within, um, which is a great uh, and characteristic triumph, I think, of Trollope's art. Um, compared to Melmott, in fact, I think the ladies and gentlemen who flock around him and who consider him so vulgar, who consider his appearance in society a, a profanation, even as they maneuver to profit from it in one way or another, they are deeply and deliberately repellent characters. Um, when we first meet Melmott at his ball in Chapter 4, we meet along with him a world of semi-aristocratic and sometimes truly aristocratic ladies and gentlemen, and it quickly becomes clear that however vulgar and overbearing Melmott is, um, those who have flocked around him are also to be the objects of our very sharp judgment. Um, the ball um, was to be opened that night. The Duchess of Stevenage explains to her son, Lord Bunningford, who doesn't want to get up and dance with Maria Melmott, um, that they have to do it. Uh, um, uh, she said, of course they are vulgar, the Duchess had said. So much as to be no, so much so as to be no longer distasteful because of the absurdity of the thing. Um, I dare say he hasn't been very honest. When, make, when men make so much money, I don't know how they can have been honest. She said, uh, uh, "Lady Onward told about Lady Monogram that she had at any time, says, but a confused idea of the distinction between commerce and fraud." Uh, um, and uh, so, you know, it's 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 all over there. Uh, um, she says, um, it's all very well saying that it isn't right, but what are we to do about Alfred's children? That's Alfred Grendel and, and the hopeless Miles. Grendel is his child. Um, um, Miles is to have, from Melmott, 500 pounds a year. And then he is always about the house. This is uh, Miles. So they want to get rid of him if they can, and the Melmots give them away. And between you and me, they have got up those bills of Alfred's and have said they can lie in their safe till it suits your uncle to pay them. Uh, so the Melmots have taken up his debts. Uh, till it suits your uncle to pay them, they will lie there a long time, said Lord Bunningford, because uh, uh, it's not going to suit Alfred or Miles to pay any debts for a long time. It gets to be known you know, right away at the, the, the first part at the Bear Garden. People realize that the IOUs are just worthless or Miles Grendel's. They're never going to be paid. Um, uh, his father is there that first night, Lord Alfred Grendel, uh, playing whist, um, Trollope tells us, was Lord Alfred's only accomplishment and almost the only occupation of his life. He began at daily at his club at three o'clock and continued playing till two in the morning with an interval of a couple of hours for his dinner. This he did during ten months of the year, and during the other two he frequented some watering place at which whist prevailed. Um, so there's just not much going on in the lives of these aristocrats, and what there is going on is false and unpleasant. Um, at the same time at the dance, the one person who we're told has a really good time at the dance is Marie Melmott. Um, Marie Melmott had been thoroughly happy. She loved dancing with all her heart if she could only dance in a manner pleasant to herself. She had been warned especially as to some men that she should not dance with them. 
She had been almost thrown into Lord Nidderdale's arms and had been prepared to take him at her father's bidding, but she never had the slightest pleasure in his society and had, had only not been wretched because she had not as yet recognized that she had an identity of her own in the disposition of which she herself should have a voice. One of the lovely features of the novel, I think, is watching Marie Melmott develop that identity and develop that voice. But it's striking. She loved dancing with all her heart. I don't think we ever hear it said about a single one of these aristocrats that they loved anything with all of their heart. Uh, there is uh, this kind of uh, hovering ennui, uh, a threat of boredom, uh, need to sort of reestablish themselves by, by infusions of cash. Um, it had become at one point, uh, uh, Lord Bitterdale says, it's become the new form of primogeniture that you, uh, um, uh, 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 you know, that rank, uh, um, rank spends cash and then commerce, you know, uh, um, uh, um, marries rank and, and, and reinfuses it. Um, the Longstaff family are other aristocrats, I think, who uh, call for a lot of our attention. Uh, um, uh, Dolly's funny as well as impossible, I think. Uh, um, the others are just awful. Uh, um, uh, uh, when we first are introduced to Mr. Longstaff uh, um, at his country place where they're um, hosting the Melmots uh, briefly, as, again, part of a bargain, that's in return for certain kinds of considerations, certain notes that have been taken up. Um, Mr. Longstaff was a tall, heavy man, about 50, with hair and whiskers carefully dyed, whose clothes were made with great care, though they always seemed to fit him too tightly, and who thought very much of his personal appearance. It was not that he considered himself handsome, but that he was specially proud of his aristocratic bearing. He entertained an idea that all who understood the matter would perceive at a single glance that he was a gentleman of the first water and a man of fashion. He was intensely proud of his position in life, thinking himself to be immensely superior to all those who earned their bread. There were no doubt gentlemen of different degrees, but the English gentleman of gentlemen was he who had land and family title deeds and an old family place and family portraits and family embarrassments and a family absence of any useful employment. Uh, so the, everything's about looking like... An, What's the actual positive content of being a gentleman? It's, it's looking like a gentleman. It's because there, there's, there's no there there um, inside this conception of gentlemanhood. Um, he was a silly man, Dickens tells us, who had no fixed idea that it behooved him to be of use to anyone. There's very few fixed ideas. We hear later he doesn't have any lively interest in life. He doesn't read. He likes to stand around in passageways and hear other gentlemen talk about matters of importance. There's, again, there's no positive content to it. Um, I like that line, though, about he was a silly man who had no fixed idea, that idea of no fixity. There's no sort of starch or backbone. backbone. The word comes back at a, at a particularly ugly moment when Lady Pomona, many hundreds of pages later, his wife, is telling Georgiana how impossible it is that she should marry that vulgar Jew, Bregert. And what she says about Mr. Longstaff, if he's fixed about anything... It's about the Jews. Uh, um, so uh, there's nothing, the only sort of starch he's got is his prejudices in some way. That's, that's the only thing he knows about being a gentleman is that other people aren't in some way. And uh, uh, so, again, this, this, this sort of circularity of this conception of gentlemanhood, which has no real uh, content. And, as I say, the extreme vulgarity of, of, uh, of, of those who never imagined themselves to be vulgar uh, um, uh, 
at the same uh, party where Maria Melmott is out at the uh, Longstaff's country place early on. Um, um, Georgiana is talking to her in sort of nasty high school mean girl way about Felix Harbury. Um, we had heard, said Georgiana, that he was a particular friend of yours. And she laughed aloud with a vulgarity which Madame Melmott certainly could not have surpassed. Uh, um, uh, uh, Georgiana is, is a uh, particularly uh, um, uh, a repellent character, I think. Although even to by the end, we sympathize with her. You don't admire her, but you don't envy her. What a life. Uh, um, uh, you know, and, uh, um, and so the, the, the emptiness of this life is something that Trollope keeps bringing us back to again and again. Uh, um, and, and more damaging and discouraging maybe even than the nastiness, uh, um, than even than the ugly prejudices, is this sense of enervation and exhaustion, the lack of any deep, full pleasure anything, of any positive attachment to anything. Um, Felix Carberry, who we meet early on, is maybe the, the, the most extreme example of this, the sort of furthest gone into um, insentience. Uh, uh, um, we're told about him when we first meet him, he could not even feel his own misfortunes unless they touched the outward comforts of the moment. It seemed that he lacked sufficient imagination to realize future misery, though the futurity to be considered was divided from the present but by a single month, a single week, but by a single night. I mean, look at his haplessness trying to run away and elope, uh, everything. Uh, uh, um, he liked to be kindly treated, to be praised and petted, to be well-fed and caressed, and they who so treated him were his chosen friends. He had in this the instincts of a horse not approaching the higher sympathies of a dog. Uh, um, and it is, so it's, a, it's, not, just the, it's not just the criticism of him, but there's, there's no, uh, he doesn't even like the things he likes very much. Uh, um, uh, it's, it's just, it's as if you spent, I feel this way after I spent maybe too many hours playing computer solitaire. I just think, you know, even, even my pleasures have become so thin and so attenuated, you know, couldn't I go out and do something that, that I like a little bit more than that? Instead of, you know, and, uh, and these guys at the Bear Garden, it's all they're doing in some sense is just keeping boredom just at bay. Uh, um, but they don't, they don't do anything uh, um, sort of energetic. Uh, um, um, when he's, after he... Um, the elopement fails and Felix is kind of hiding out. Um, and this is even before the further humiliation of his getting uh, beaten so badly by John Crumb. Um, um, uh, the narrator tells us, he was chiefly tormented in these days by the want of amusement. He had so spent his life hitherto that he did not know how to get through a day in which no excitement was provided for him. He never read. Thinking was altogether beyond him, and he had never done a day's work in his life. Um, and you know, later on, after Melmott's death, Lord Nidderdale sort of the best that this crowd has to offer, I think, says to Dolly at one point, Melmott's death was rather awful, said Nitterdale, and Dolly Longstaff says, not half so awful as having nothing to amuse one. Uh, um, um, so um, these Bear Garden guys are particularly bad, I think, but the malady of low-spiritedness is epidemic in the novel in some ways. Nobody's having any real fun. Maybe Maria Melmott, when she dances, uh, um, 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 and uh, you know, these low spirits come in several forms for the most of the privileged gentlemen of the novel, the problem is ennui. Um, Lord Nitterdale at one point says, I think it must have something to do with the fall of Adam, he says. Uh, uh, um, I, I'm not a little clear on the theology, but, but uh, uh, when he's talking about why the bear garden has to fail. Um, but there are other enemies to pleasure, and many people in the novel, especially the women, are doing hard, steady work, 
but work emptied of value and satisfaction, work that by its nature can't get anywhere but just struggles to stay even, to stay ahead, to keep the game going. Think of Lady Carberry, uh, struggling to make her awful early marriage and then to survive it, to support her worthless son, to keep bouncing in the air all the balloons of her literary ambition. Um, Lady Carberry, who looks back at the end of the novel and asks herself, what real enjoyment, this is a quote, had she found in anything? Um, there's, it's a lovely moment at the end, I think, where she does come into Safe Harbor and that nice proposal scene with Mr. Brown. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but everybody's like this, and even the people who are in one way idle, um, we are told about Georgiana, Georgiana Longstaff says to her father when she says uh, that, you know, why can't I go up to London, because she's still got to be in the husband hunting business. Um, she says to him, it isn't for pleasure that I want to go there. There isn't so very much pleasure in it. Uh, um, she has a job to do, and she works hard at it. Um, we're told uh, towards the end of the book, just before she runs off with her sort of pathetically uh, low-status, uh, low-money uh, curate, um, she had now been 10 years at the work and had failed. Um, but even the people who succeed, it doesn't seem like it's really giving them pleasure. Again, back to Lady Damask, uh, excuse me, Lady Monogram, uh, Sir Damask Monogram's uh, wife. Um, well, she says at one point to Georgiana, of course I go in for what you call fashion. Some people can dare to ask anybody they meet in the streets. I can't. I've my own line and I mean to follow it. It's hard work, I can tell you, and it would be harder still if I wasn't particular. Um, as little as we admire Lady Monogram, and she's in the running, I think, to be the most repellent character in the novel, um, uh, you know, we envy her even less. Uh, um, um, so I think we, we've identified and, and specified some of the terms of Trollope's critique of the falsities of this social world, its reliance on unreal and ungrounded measures of value, and its failures of both morality and morale. Uh, so what about the positive values in the book? What is there to be affirmed or believed in, and, and is it enough? And I want to argue in some ways, it's, if you're measuring from inside the book, it's not enough to save the civilization, what can be affirmed. It's not enough to make us feel better about the world, really, but it's enough to give us deep gratification as we read the book. And there are sorts of gratifications from satire, too, and from comedy, but there are also other things that warm the novel, I think, and give it a kind of comic and human life, so that even when people have sorrows and losses, as Roger Carberry does in one sense, as Mrs. Hurdle does in another, there's a kind of human juice to those sorrows. There's a kind of human content to it, I think, that fills up the book in some sense, that, that adds to the sense of large-heartedness. So I want to change gears now and, and look at two possible sources of positive value in the novel. Um, at, at Roger Carberry, and relatedly at the representation of romantic love. Um, and here I think there are two really richly mixed stories to tell, and there can be significant disagreements of judgment and valuation. Uh, for many critics, uh, um, uh, Roger Carberry is the clear moral center and moral hero of the novel, the person whose judgments we are to rely on. And in some ways you understand that. He is um, he's a good gentleman who works on his estate, who behaves with probity and principle, who keeps the false god mammon in its proper place, spending his own money wisely, often very generously, practicing good stewardship over the wealth that has been given to him and that he will give to his heir. Almost alone among the gentlemen of the novel, he resists entirely and even effortlessly the lure of Melmotism. He's scrupulously honest, courteous, even to those of whom he disapproves. Altogether, an English gentleman 
who might redeem the category from the likes of Adolphus Longstaff, uh, a senior and junior. Um, but there are significant problems, I think, with the gentlemanly code as we watch it in operation in, uh, in Roger Carberry's life. His probity can feel a lot like priggishness, I think. Um, even if he's right that Melmott's a swindler and a thief, he can't really know that about Melmott at the beginning. What he knows is that Melmott is a wrong sort of person. Such a one as Melmott, he says, it's a frequent locution. Such a one as Mrs. Hurdle. Uh, uh, such a one as Melmott. I should not have thought that such a one as Adolphus Longstaff would have such a one as Melmott come to stay with him. Well, there's something deeply wrong with that categorization. Melmott's bad, but Adolphus Longstaff is worse in some ways, or just as bad anyway. And what uh, Roger Carberry is defending there is really just a form of prejudice. Uh, um, um, uh, you know, he's, he's hideously uncharitable in some ways without ever knowing her to Mrs. Hurtle, uh, um, um, who he thinks of as, a, as an adventurous, as a, again, such a one as Mrs. Hurdle is not somebody who is, is someone who is an English gentleman is polluted to have had to do with. Um, and, um, you know, we don't ever hear him comment on uh, Georgiana's marriage to Mr. Braggart. It doesn't come up. But I don't think it would be edifying, probably, what he would have to say about marriage between a lady, such a one as uh, Georgiana Longstaff, and, um, and, and the Jew Braggart. Um, and beyond these prejudices, I think there's a conspicuous lack of positive content to his code. Um, uh, Put it another way, I think his encounters keep suggesting, all of the encounters in the novel do, that there's a kind of link between vulgarity and vitality. The vulgar people are the energetic people in some ways, the ones, uh, um, uh, um, and uh, Roger, uh, Roger Carberry's scrupulous abstention from vulgarity, his own form of courtesy, seems to be all a matter of restraint rather than a vigorous and effective action. Um, at one time, we know uh, Trollope intended, again, back in the mentioned this briefly, to introduce um, a, a religious crisis of some kind into Roger Carberry's life. And there are little echoes of it. We get told several times that he didn't really believe in the forgiveness of sins, uh, um, that, he, that although he could pray uh, to have his trespasses forgiven even as he forgave those who trespassed against him, he didn't think that that obliged him not to be set in enmity against Paul Montague, who had offended him so deeply. I don't think Trollope really judges him negatively for this because we know from elsewhere Trollope is infinitely generous and advises us to be generous with ourselves, understands that it's a part of our humanity to have our small hypocrisies, our small difficulties sorting ourselves out. But he calls such attention to this and the issue of who's a Christian and who isn't, or not just who's a Protestant and a Christian and who isn't, um, gets so much attention in this novel that I can't help but think he wants us to notice uh, um, that there's another creed more demanding than the gentlemanly creed that some of the gentlemen are having trouble with. Um, and I think um, the introduction of Father Barham, the bumptious Catholic priest, uh, um, also is a way in which uh, he makes that point. Um, Father Barham's impossible in some way. He proves himself to be impossible. He's rude. He proselytizes. Uh, um, uh, um, he does all the things that gentlemen shouldn't do uh, um, over dinner, uh, um, sort of attacking other people's religion. And in some sense, he's made ultimately ridiculous and dispensable in the novel by that crazy interlude where he marches into Melmott's uh, house uh, uh, to confront him. And Melmott uh, says to him, you know, some lunatic on the loose, see that there, you know, see that there ain't any knives about, Alfred, he says. Uh, uh, you know, and, and then Melmott goes away saying, I mean, Barham goes away and uh, uh, says to one of his uh, co-religionists, I think he's with us. I, I think he's one of us. Uh, uh, you know, 
So he's an absurd figure, but it's hard not to feel that he doesn't in some way get the best of that conversation, uh, um, of those exchanges with Roger and with the sort of infinitely uh, sort of patient and polite uh, a bishop. Um, the bishop, we're told, uh, was an unselfish man who loved his neighbor as himself and forgave all trespasses and thanked God for his daily bread from his heart and prayed heartily to be delivered from temptation. Pretty good. That sounds great. Uh, um, but I doubt whether he was competent to teach a creed or even to hold one, if it be necessary that a man should understand and define his creed before he can hold it. Um, and uh, this is the bishop. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, and then when the bishop is riding home with his wife, we get some you know, sense of the, of the level of theological conversation in her life. She says about this, having uh, dinner with Father uh, Barham, uh, I don't think it answers, said Mrs. Yell to her husband as they went home. Um, um, of course, I don't want to be prejudiced, but Protestants are Protestants, and Roman Catholics are Roman Catholics. It's hard to argue with logic like that. Uh, uh, and, uh, the, and, then the, the, uh, and then the bishop says, well, you may say the same of liberals and conservatives, but you wouldn't have them decline to meet each other. It isn't quite the same, my dear. After all, religion is religion, uh, of her final clinching point. Uh, um, um, and you know what she means. Uh, um, but it isn't much of a creed to be advancing into the world with. Again, so the, 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 this, the, the church, too, even in its very sort of humane generosity, and the bishop is in some ways a deeply uh, uh, humane and admirable and appealing figure, but uh, when it comes to fighting with somebody for whom his religion really makes a difference, Father Barham's got the edge in some way. There's just this general weakness. So uh, even if we take the most admiring view of Roger's qualities, he's at the best a man deeply disappointed in life, and a man who doesn't succeed in some sense. He doesn't, whatever kind of man he is, he doesn't find a way forward into full and successful living. Um, he doesn't have children. He uh, can only produce in some way the next generation of Carberries uh, um, by that sort of uh, fantastic, in some ways heroic, in some ways deeply unsettling act of self-suppression that makes him decide he's going to be Hedda's father rather than her lover, that he's going to take the man who he feels has betrayed him and adopt their children as his own. There's something beautiful about that, but there's also some way in which it's a measure of the defeat of his, his way of life. Uh, um, he starts out, we're told, being, a, 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 being just a boy, uh, um, and then he's an old man, and there's no sort of full masculine life in the middle. Um, there's a weird passage early on where uh, um, before Paul has formally proposed to Hedda, but we've already been told it's been set up for us how things are going to turn out, uh, but um, where Roger is making his appeal one more time to Hedda and the narrator tells us this, in that moment she all but yielded to him. Had he seized her in his arms and kissed her then, I think she would have yielded. She did all but love him. She so regarded him that it had it been some other woman that he craved, she would have used every art she knew to have backed his suit and would have been ready to swear that any woman was a fool who refused him. She almost hated herself because she was unkind to one who so thoroughly deserved kindness. Now, it's a tricky passage. If he had seized her in his arms and kissed her, I think she would have yielded. Um, I, I don't read this. I, it feels like... Uh, tricky, you know, these days in particular. Um, <laughs> but I, 
I don't read it as, as an endorsement of sexual assault. I don't think it's that. Um, and I don't think it's saying that Hedda would have returned his love only out of pity. Um, telling us that she did all but love him, I think this passage is doing an interesting thing for a novel to do. It's looking down an alternate pathway, uh, um, something that didn't happen in this novel, but that might have happened, in which an alternate pathway in which a slightly different Roger Carberry a man with a greater degree of vital energy, a stronger libido, um, and a less tragically proper and restrained idea of what it means to express love for a woman, that Roger Carberry might have been able to tip the scales, to convert the all-but-love that Hedda feels for him to the real thing, to make him sexually and romantically eligible to her, as he never becomes in this fictional universe. Because it's a fact about Roger Carberry that for all his strength of principle and character, for all his power of persistence and resistance, he too suffers in his own quite distinctive way from this failure of energy. Um, and there's a lot of that. It's epidemic in the novel, this failure. Uh, um, masculine libido in particular is very uh, deficient. Um, uh, uh, you know, Dolly Longstaff may be an exceptional case, but uh, um, when his mother says to him, um, you know, maybe you should try for Marie Melmot, he says, but I haven't any mind to try it. Good gracious me, oh dear, it isn't at all in my way, mother, he says. Uh, um, um, and I think, I mean, I, I, he's a sort of proto-wildy and dandy. I think there may be some kind of... Uh, you know, homosocial coding. It's not quite clear at what level of consciousness or explicitness Trollope can have been thinking about that. But it's still the case in some way he is one of many young men who um, has some idea that maybe he needs to get married to get money, but doesn't have much idea that he might like to get married because he might like to be in love with a woman uh, um, and have her be in love with him and have a full romantic relationship. And What's striking about that is that we're told, even when Felix Carberry is with Ruby Ruggles, um, the narrator tells us he probably did not enjoy it much. He cared very little about her and carried on the liaison simply because it was the proper sort of thing for a young man to do. Um, um, and uh, there's a nice moment where uh, uh, Lady Carberry is sort of teasing Melmot. Uh, um, it's back in the days when she's still hoping that everything's going to work out between Felix and Marie, and she sees uh, Felix uh, sitting next to uh, Marie on the couch somewhere at, at, at uh, this is at Caversham, the Longstaff's place, and she says to Melmot, uh, happy fellow to be sitting next uh, to your uh, daughter. And Melmot says, I don't know much about that. Young men don't get their happiness in that way now. They've got other things to think of. Um, that's really true. Um, the, only, the only character in the novel who seems to be amply supplied with testosterone um, is Paul Montague, um, who indeed rather overdoes it, I think. Uh, <laughs> Um, um, he declares himself passionately and with all apparent sincerity and conviction and with all too much success to not just one but two beautiful young women. Um, and he leads us to a whole uh, new set of problems. I'm sorry, I see the time. I'm going to hurry through this last part. But I want to think about the happy love affair um, that ends the novel in some way. The, the love affair between Hedda and Paul is, um, if, if anything, it's the... It, it's the the book's greatest claim in some sense to be called a romantic comedy. Romantic comedies often operate this way in Trollope in particular. You can see very early on what needs to happen in order for the happy end to come out. There's this, uh, you know, young man who's desperately in love with this young woman, but, but, you know, his parents or her parents are unalterably opposed to it or something, and it's going to be the business of the novel to remove that impediment and to get him married. And it's extraordinary about Trollope that he can make us care about and be deeply engaged by novels even when it's so perfectly clear where we're headed, I think. 
That's the business of this novel. In some way, we could say at the beginning to get Hedda Carberry and Paul Montague married. But what's striking, if you look back on it from the perspective of the end, is how relatively little time and attention Trollope gives to it. Um, I think uh, this is another place I want to pull out and say, trust, uh, trust the tale, not the teller. You can often tell, it seems to me, what really matters in a novel, um, not by what an author says about it or even by sort of overt facts of plot, but by where the writing gets intense and where, and when you think about the scenes that Trollope really invests in, they're not the scenes between Paul and Head. If you look back on the Paul-Head relationship, I think the intensities of feeling that we carry away are from the wreckage and the heartbreak that lies in the wake of that. It's what Roger Carberry feels about it that we focus on, and even more, I think, what Mrs. Hurdle feels about it and what she experiences about it. Um, there's a scene, you know, after Paul has proposed to Hedda, and it's, I mean, the proposal is really kind of unsatisfactory. Um, um, one thing that's upsetting, he says to her when she says, you know, he says, you know, can I have your hand? She says, if you want it. He says, want it? Hedda, I have never wanted anything but that with real desire. He says, um, we just saw him with Mrs. Hurdle like 10 pages ago. Um, it's, I mean, he's clearly made his decision. I don't think, you know, I, I don't think Trollope's telling us it's not going to be a happy marriage. I don't think he's telling us that, that, that Paul doesn't really by now want to get married to Hedda Carberry instead of to Mrs. Hurdle. But the idea that this is his only real desire, he's like one of those, again, you know, friends in high school who keeps telling you about each succeeding crush, oh, this is the real thing this time. I'm not, you know. Uh, uh, we've seen him, it's not possible to believe that he doesn't have, that he hasn't felt in his time real desire for, um, for Mrs. Hurdle. Um, it's okay, it's legitimate to feel it again, but it exposes, in some sense, the emptiness of this love language. He goes on and on after he proposes to her about how it's okay for them to hurt Roger Carberry because of the holiness of love. And I think, I won't read the whole passage now, but I think as he goes through it, I think we can hear the falsity and we're intended to hear the falsity. It's not, we don't criticize him severely, but something is tugged away at the foundations of, 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 of the romantic comedy model in which Real love is first love, and it's the real thing, and you know it. I mean, none of that quite quite works here, um, and I think it all leaves a, you know, a bad taste. And then, of course, she gets mad at him because she finds out about Mrs. Hurdle, and so she has to write him a letter. You know, she goes to see Mrs. Hurdle. Um, I think the scene where she sees Mrs. Hurdle is a wonderful scene. It's so memorable. She's weeping. In fact, Mrs. Hurdle is showing her both her power and her generosity. She knows very well that she could tell the truth but still turn Hedda against Paul. And she decides deliberately to tell the story in such a way that will save Hedda for Paul and save Paul for Hedda. It's a wonderful scene. Um, that's a very powerful scene. What about the scene where Paul Montague and Hedda reach their final understanding where she tells him she forgives him and they decide to get married? There isn't such a scene. <laughs> it never happens. Uh, the reason you don't remember it is because they just get married. Um, um, he moves right past it. And so the real investments of energy, I think, at the end of the novel come in, in other scenes. We're told early on about uh, Lady Carberry and Mr. Brown when he first proposed to her, to her that their intimacy had been very fictitious, Trollope says, as are many intimacies. Uh, um, think about Marie Melmott's love for, uh, for Felix, too, which... Is that a true or a false love? It's, it's entirely fictitious. It's made up on an idea about who he is rather than on anything remotely real about him. Um, and nevertheless, 
It's a love that she, that she gives a kind of dignity by believing in it so ardently, um, even though, well, thank goodness for her, she doesn't get married to Felix Carberry. Um, um, but uh, Trollope is very alert to the fictitiousness of intimacies, and in some way that all those nervousness, those anxieties we had that were raised by our thought about the credit economy, maybe there's no real positive content to this modern wealth, Maybe there's no positive content to social standing. Maybe there's no positive content to, uh, um, to some people's religious belief, to being a gentleman. And maybe in some ways, not. I don't think Trollope is not being negative about love, but some of the cherished myths of romantic love. And so he said, it's not clear how they'll bear up under examination, I think. And uh, so I think the two scenes that I'm left with at the end uh, um, that really sort of vibrate with intensity for me Actually, the one between Lady Harbury and Mr. Brown, um, that's a different love, um, and that's an earned love in some sense. It comes as the result of intimacy rather than as the cause of intimacy. She says to him um, when she's trying to, when he's proposed to her again and she's so sort of struck with wonder about it, she says, and then I seem so to have fallen through in everything. I don't know what I've got to give to a man in return for all that you offer to give to me. Yourself, he said. It's a wonderful moment, I think. Stretching out his right hand to her, and there he sat with it stretched out so that she found herself compelled to put her own into it or to refuse to do so with very absolute words. Very slowly she put out her own and gave it to him without looking at him. Then he drew her towards him, and in a moment she was kneeling at his feet with her face buried on his knees. Considering their ages, perhaps we must say that their attitude was awkward. Um, they would certainly have thought so themselves had they imagined that anyone could have seen them. But how many absurdities of the kind are not only held to be pleasant, but almost holy? That word comes back, and I think it's endorsed by the management this time in a way it's not when Paul uses it. As long as they remain mysteries inspected by no profane eyes. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful scene, I think, and deeply moving uh, and fully earned. And I'm also just, you know, ravished always by the scene at the end, that last scene of Mrs. Hurdle. Um, she stood still. This is after Paul has left her. Remember, she's sort of had her last parting with him. And he, you know, being just all too human, all too male as he is, after he kisses her once or twice, is all ready to keep kissing her. And she's the one who pushes him away. Uh, um, uh, um, she stood still after he leaves without moving a limb as she listened to his step down the stairs into the opening and the closing of the door. Then, hiding herself at the window with the scanty drapery of the curtain, she watched him as he went along the street. When he had turned the corner, she came back to the center of the room, stood for a moment with her arms stretched out towards the walls, and then fell prone upon the floor. She had spoken the very truth when she said that she loved him with all her heart. Now, she knows he's not He's a much lesser human being than she is in some ways. She feels greater than, but she did love him with all her heart. She falls to the floor, and maybe it's almost as heroic and impressive a moment of strength on her part when we're told, but when Mrs. Pipkin knocked later, she was fully upright, polite, kind to the children as always, and she takes her dignified way out of the novel. Um, so it's the peculiar greatness of the way we live now, I would say, uh, a peculiar and distinguishing between the Trollope canon, <clears throat> that it offers us an account, <clears throat> excuse me, at once panoramic and penetrating of the falsities and corruption and hypocrisy and exhaustion of a society, <clears throat> sorry, of Melmots and Longstaffs and Nidderdales and Carberries. But it's also a peculiar Trollopean greatness of the novel 
a greatness deeply characteristic of all of his novels, that it offers us moments of such emotional power. Moments so long and well and patiently prepared by the careful accumulation of ordinary, plausible, richly rendered behavior as, clo as those closing scenes of Lady Carberry happily at rest at last and of Mrs. Hurdle obliged to gather herself up and continue bravely her long struggle. Thank you very much. Thank you.